I know that we celebrated the dads in the room, uh, and I don't want to draw uh, too much attention to the dads in this room, but I just was wondering if, and you don't, don't answer this by hands or out loud, just take it all in, but I wonder if there's anyone in the room that has ever, you know, heard the words before, you're just not listening to me. You know, when somebody says, you're just not listening to me, doesn't mean you didn't hear them, right? You could hear things, but not really listen to someone, right? Uh, the two are separate. Well, as we work our way through the high priestly prayer found in John 17, Jesus praying to the Father. And the encouragement for us as we study this passage of scripture is that we really listen to what Jesus is saying. Because I think oftentimes, when we hear somebody pray, we get a glimpse into their heart. We know a little bit about what's really important to them, don't we? You know, we, we hear the, the, the sense of who they are coming through their prayer. And that's what we get in this high priestly prayer. The only, the only place in scripture where we see Jesus interceding on behalf of followers. The only place where we see Jesus stepping in that gap and praying for you and me specifically. It's an amazing, an amazing prayer. Jesus interceding on our behalf to the Father. His heart coming through should make a difference to us. We should seek after, you know, what is he really saying? How do I understand that? How does it apply to my life? In Hebrews 7.25, it says, consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who are drawn near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. See, Jesus at the right hand of the Father, interceding on our behalf. As we've been working through this great prayer, high priestly prayer of Jesus, um, I could simply, and it is a very simple um, Reflection on the previous two weeks. The first week, if I could simply capsize it in the idea of eternity, salvation, Jesus praying for his followers to be with him in eternity, that they know him, that they be saved, they walk with him. And then last week, it was kind of the idea of sanctification or being set apart, living faithfully to the truth of the gospel, living faithfully to who Jesus is. And then this morning, we're going to look at the glorification. Jesus praying this prayer, excited, anticipating us, his followers, being with him in heaven, joining with him together in heaven. I couldn't help but think as I was capsizing that in my, uh, in my mind, you know, salvation, sanctification, and glorification, how oftentimes in our prayer life, we pray for our loved ones in a similar way. If you have people that you care about deeply and they don't know Jesus, you know, a lot of times our prayers are that they come to know Jesus and spend an eternity with Jesus. Others, we could be praying very specifically that they be held in Jesus' grip, that they don't allow the world and the entanglements of this world to draw them away, to suck them away from the truth of the gospel. And ultimately, especially as we get older, we look forward to that glorification when we will be with Jesus in glory. And I think that there's a very simple way 
to summarize the high priestly prayer this way. But I've broken down this last section in starting in verse 20. And if you have your apps or your Bibles, however you're going to read this morning, if you want to turn to John 17, verse 20, I've broken it down into three large sections. The first one is Jesus prays for all of his followers. Jesus prays for all of his followers. Now, the previous two weeks, Pastor Russell, who's been teaching shared with us that he believed that Jesus was praying for not only the disciples that were present, but also by extension for you and I, a couple thousand years after the fact. Well, here in verse 20, he's very specific. He says, I do not ask for these only, but also those who will believe in me through their word. So Jesus says, I'm not only praying for these that are present, but I'm praying for those that will that will come to know me, that will follow me. And how will they come to know Christ? Through the word of God, through the word that these men, these 11 apostles who are faithful with the gospel message will pass it down from generation to generation. And you and I will be the recipients of this good news of the gospel. They would be faithful with the word, empowered by the Holy Spirit to write the word, the testimony of Jesus, and we would be able years and years later to hear of the truth of the gospel. I couldn't help but think about these men that Jesus was entrusting the gospel with. These men were flawed. They They were fishermen by and large. Most of them were uneducated They weren't what you and I often would say, the cream of the crop. That's not the way Jesus went about business, was it? They were flawed and perfect people, and yet Jesus used them mightily for his kingdom. I thought about Peter, and even though Peter was given a heads up that, hey, Peter, you'll deny me three times. Peter went ahead and denied Jesus three times, didn't he? And what about Thomas? Thomas, after the resurrection, seeing Jesus, he needed to touch Jesus. James and John seemed to jockey for position and power. All 11 men would flee and run for their lives after Jesus was arrested and crucified. See, these men were flawed individuals, tainted by the world and their human nature. Maybe you and I can relate a little bit to that, you know, can't we? And yet God entrusts us, empowers us to communicate the gospel to a lost and dying world. In 2 Timothy 2.2, Paul tells Timothy, he says, and what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. So Jesus entrusts this message to the disciples who in turn have passed it on. And now Paul passing out to Timothy and encouraging Timothy to pass it on to others. That's the same message that Jesus has given us to be faithful with the gospel message, to be faithful with what God has given us. Imperfect, flawed human beings, men and women entrusted with the gospel of Jesus. I find this example of Jesus using these flawed men to spread the gospel. And now 2000 years later, we are living in that reality of that answered prayer that these men were faithful with the gospel. 
an encouragement because you know it's so easy to write people off. It's so easy to be written off, right? And yet God, by his faithfulness, by his character, entrusts flawed human beings to carry on the gospel. The second thing I see here is Jesus prays for our oneness. In verse 21, it says, that they may be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they may also be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one even as we are one. I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you have loved me. So this, this oneness is a unique oneness. It would be easy if we could just say it's a practical oneness. It's just, you know, we all live together in harmony. We're at peace. We work well together. We're all alike. But I don't really believe that that is what Jesus is talking about here. For he says, you know, you and me, I and them. It's a, it's a spiritual oneness. It's a oneness of the spirit of the living God inside of us as believers. It's the unity of spirit. Um, six years ago or so, uh, I was talking last night with a family and I'm trying to remember a date, but I think it was six years ago. Uh, I was on a mission trip with young adults in Lafayette. And um, I had just had our first grandchild, Jade. And by the way, my youngest daughter is pregnant with another grandchild, little girl. So we're excited about that. But anyway, I digress there. Um, but while we're in Lafayette, we're getting ready to go. And friends of mine said, oh, when you're in Lafayette, you have to get this Matryoshka Russian nesting doll. I probably did not say that right. If you're Russian and you know Russian, forgive me. Um, but let's go with a Russian nesting doll. Uh, it's, a, it's a beautiful figure, isn't it? Not mine, this. It's a beautiful figure, right? Um, and, and I thought that what I was going after was a doll, you know, just something, a doll, a little doll. Um, but these things are pricey. You know, I guess that many of them are hand-painted and very expensive. But what happens is with this Russian nesting doll is that if you twist it, another one comes out just like the other one, and so on. And that's the last one. So one inside the other, just like the other, with every illustration that we ever use, it breaks down on multiple levels, and this one certainly does, but it's that kind of mind-boggling idea of how the father is in the son, the son is in the father, and we are in them. It's really amazing how Jesus communicates as he's praying that we be one as he and the father are one, that we are unified through the presence and the power of the Holy Spirit living inside of us. See, when people see us and are around us, we should remind them of Jesus. We should remind them of our savior, Jesus. And when people hear the teachings of Jesus, it should remind them of us. Oh, that reminds me of so-and-so. If we're a good representation of the presence and dwelling spirit of God, us being in him, him and us. Ephesians 4, three through six says, 
eager to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and father of all who is over all and through all and in all. And 1 Corinthians 12, 13, for in one spirit, we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. It's a unique oneness. And I couldn't help but think, obviously the disciples heard this prayer of Jesus. That's how it's recorded for us. But I couldn't help but think of how that must have really challenged their thinking. What was he talking about? Because the, 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 the power of the Holy Spirit and the indwelling power of the Holy Spirit, which you and I have understood through the scripture, makes it a little more clear. But these disciples just wonder how they understood this unique oneness of being in the Father. And this unique oneness leads to a unique purpose, a unique purpose. It's a genuine purpose. It's twice in this passage we have these, these words. In verse 21, we say, so that the world may believe that thou hast sent me. And in verse 23, so that the world may know that thou hast sent me. So here I believe that Jesus gives us the great objective or purpose of us being one with him. It is this idea of our unique oneness draws us to a unique purpose. And the purpose is to proclaim the message of the gospel so that the world might know of Jesus. Our ultimate aim, our ultimate aim is to represent Christ well here on this earth, that we might be a reflection of his glory. Sometimes believers think that the purpose of their salvation is here on this earth to make the world a better place. And I pray that we do make the world a better place. But that's not the ultimate goal. That's not the ultimate purpose of our salvation. You know, we do a lot of what I would call social ministries. Um, you know, we seek to serve the community around us. We have a food pantry that hands out more food than you can imagine. We have a closed closet. Um, and, and a lot of our life groups are engaged in different social ministries around the community and around the world. Operation Christmas Child is a huge ministry here at McGregor. Um, I was told that we gave, uh, we sent out around the world almost 3,000 OCC, Operation Christmas Child, boxes. And these boxes, these shoe boxes are sent around the world with toys and gifts. But the purpose of those boxes is not that some child in an impoverished country receives a gift at Christmas time, although that's nice, but that's not the goal. I know the heart of those that volunteer year round to make OCC work. And the heart is that that child that receives that box is a tool to share the gospel of Jesus' love. See, that box is not the end goal, but only a tool that God will use to see kids come to know Jesus in a personal way or a parent come to know Jesus in a personal way. And it happens 
all the time. In verse 22, it says, the glory you have given me, I have given to them. The father gives the son glory and the son gives his followers glory. Glory is repeatedly mentioned in this prayer. Verse one, verse four, verse five, verse nine. Glory is a big deal. But we tend to be glory seekers, don't we? Uh, we live in a culture where, you know, we're all about TikTok and YouTube and, and Instagram. And if I were really up on the times, I probably could list multiple other avenues that it's all about the person projecting that image. And why are they doing that? Oh, maybe the heart is not to seek glory, but that's exactly what happens. We draw attention to ourselves and make us the stealer of the glory that God would really desire us to reflect back to him. I'm involved in a uh, project we call Renew 2. Um, we did Renew 1, a lot of, of, of different uh, stuff around our campus where we were uh, helping spruce up and you gave a couple million dollars to help us paint buildings and repair air conditioners and do a lot of stuff. The next phase is phase two and phase two will be a refresh of this worship center. Uh, the pews that you are sitting on are almost 40 years old. We should probably applaud the pews because it's amazing. Uh, some of these pews have actually been supported underneath. We keep praying that they hold us up. But we recognize that this worship center needs a refresh. So I've been involved in that. And in talking to contractors and designers and vendors, they want to know, you know, well, what is, the worship, what is your worship center used for? What is it like? And one of the first things I tell them is that we, we want this refresh to reflect who McGregor is. We don't want to change our facility and become something that we're not. And it's important to know that we see this, this stage, this platform, as a place where we communicate the gospel it's not a show. We're not looking to entertain anybody. We want to communicate the truth that Jesus saves. I'm a part of a teaching team. I'm one of five men that share the responsibility of communicating the truth of God's word from this, this place. And I would honestly tell you that I believe all five of us have a heart to share and communicate the gospel and none of us are seeking attention for ourselves. We want Jesus to be glorified in this place. Whoever is standing here communicating the gospel is seeking to communicate the truth that Jesus saves. He is the big deal. We are not a big deal. But I'm not naive. I believe it is so easy. It's such a slippery slope. Anytime we get any kind of attention or limelight, for all of a sudden for it to become about us instead of about Jesus. But God gave the son glory and the son gives us glory, but we are to reflect that glory back to him. Kind of mind boggling, isn't it? Kind of crazy what Jesus has done for us. 
In 2 Corinthians 3.18, it says, And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed in the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. So our unique oneness, our unique purpose, and our unique love. In verse 23, it says, I in them and you in me, that they may become one, so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you loved me. That you've loved them even as you've loved me. Jesus is praying to his father, I see how you've loved me and may, may they know how much you love them. We've thrown around the definition of love here um, is, as an unconditional self-sacrificial commitment to the well-being of another. Uh, doing a lot of premarital counseling through the years. I used a very similar definition many, many years ago, but I tacked on. It's not only the unconditional self-sacrificial commitment to the well-being of another, but that another person is a flawed human being. You know, we're committed to somebody that we know is going to make mistakes. They're going to blow it. They're going to disappoint us. Most of us, if I were to ask, can you say John 3.16? We'd go, yeah, I can say John 3.16. For God so loved the world, right? For God so loved the world that he gave. But in God loving the world, it wasn't just about our salvation. But God was aiming beyond us that we might be a tool that God uses to bring him glory and share the gospel, the good news of Jesus with other people. See, our life is ministry and our ministry is life. You know, it's, it's just not something that we do on Sunday. Well, I go to church on Sunday and the rest of the week I live for myself. No, when you are a follower of Jesus, then ministry becomes your life. Whatever you do, wherever you go, you represent Jesus to a lost and dying world. See, if heaven was my only aim, if my only goal in life was salvation, then wouldn't it make sense that when, when God originated the whole idea of sending his son to earth, that if once we get saved, once we go from a spiritual death to spiritual life being in Christ, that immediately God takes us up, raptures us into heaven. It would just make sense, right? But that's not what happens. So think, why does God leave us here after we're saved? He leaves us here so that we can do the ministry of the gospel, so that we can be the tools that he uses to communicate the truth that Jesus loves you, a sinner, to the rest of the world. In John 13, 35, Jesus told his followers, by this all men will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. Love one another. Unfortunately, our love is often kind of a tit for tat. You do this for me and I'll love you. You know, it's a conditional type of love. And God calls us into a love that is sacrificial I know that many of you are involved in a life group at McGregor. And when I, when I think about this unconditional type of love, I see this displayed in our life groups most clearly. 
how these small group communities come alongside of one another and support one another, encourage one another. And I've seen people that have been supported, encouraged, that have gone through the toughest of times. And they have said to me, Pastor Kerry, I don't know where I would have been without my life group. I don't know how I would have gotten through these times if it hadn't been for my life group. It was a blessing to be in a, in a community of believers that care for one another, love one another well. The last thing I see here is Jesus prays that all of his followers be with him in heaven. It says in verse 24, Father, I desire that they also whom you've given me may be with me where I am to see my glory that you've given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. Oh, righteous father, even though the world does not know you, I know you. And these know that you sent me. I made known to them your name and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. The Lord kind of prays us into heaven. Jesus is saying, you know, I want these followers of mine to meet me in glory. Those that you have given me, I look forward to the day when they will see me in heaven. The full glory of the Lord. Jesus' desire is that the Father would answer that prayer that they be united, that we as his followers be united in heaven. In Hebrews 12, 2, it says, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the glory that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Jesus was heaven bound and he knew it. And he was looking forward to his followers to joining him in heaven. Philippians, Paul tells us in Philippians 1, 23, my desire is to depart and be with Christ. Now, I don't think that Paul was suicidal. I don't think he was wanting to die, but he understood how important it was and his draw, his yearning, yearning for heaven. See, if there's anything here on this earth that is more desiring than your relationship with Jesus, then we've missed the mark. And it's so easy to get caught up in the things of this world, isn't it? The things that we possess, the tangible things, the relationships that we have can become such a priority when Jesus should be our first priority. If the Lord is not more precious to me here, then heaven becomes a loss. If the Lord is not more precious to me here while I'm alive on earth, then heaven becomes lost because that's what we're going to have in heaven is Jesus. Bring this to a close this morning. Two ideas, two thoughts. John MacArthur said that this high priestly prayer is all about the glory of God and the love of God. And if I could summarize the past three weeks, it'd be that we are called to see his glory. That we are called to see his glory I've got a couple images that I want to share with you. These images, um, we probably, a lot of us grew up, or maybe we even have an image in our home today. The middle image that you see on the screen this morning is an image that I had as a boy growing up. I don't know where it came from. I didn't grow up in an overtly Christian home. I don't know how it got in my room, on my dresser, eventually in my drawer, but I had it. And I remember it to this day. Many of you probably have 
some image of Jesus. I don't think the image is bad. I don't necessarily think it's good. It just is an image. But here's what the image deals, reveals to us is that an image will never measure up to the real thing. It's just an image. And maybe in some degree or another, it's a helpful reminder of Jesus. But the reality is that it falls short, very, very short of the reality of being in the presence of Jesus. Last week, my wife and I went to visit one of our senior saints in an assisted living facility. And as, she was, as we were visiting with her back and forth and got to the time to about to leave, and I asked her, I said, you know, how, how can we pray for you? And she says, pray that I go home. She says, Pastor Carrie, pray that I go home. And she wasn't talking about an earthly home. She was talking about her heavenly home. And I said to her, I said, what are, you, what are you looking forward to the most about going home? And she, without hesitation, throws open her arms. She said, I'm looking forward to seeing Jesus. I'm looking forward to seeing Jesus. You know what she didn't say? She didn't say, ah, oh, she said, this body that is falling apart is giving me so much trouble. You know, I'm looking forward to no more pain and no more suffering, no more sorrow, no more heartache. She didn't say, I'm looking forward to walking the streets of gold. I think she, this senior saint of ours, hit the nail on the head. For heaven is all about seeing Jesus. It's not about all that stuff. You know, I love to travel. I've been blessed to do a lot of traveling over my 37 years of ministry. I've done mission trips and, and trips. We've been to Israel, a lot of travel. And I enjoy traveling. As a matter of fact, uh, my wife and I and Pastor Russell and his wife are gonna lead a team to Greece and Turkey next year. If you need more information, you can get that out in the church office or online. I look forward to that trip. But you know what? As much as I love to travel, the reality is I look forward to coming home. I have a nice house. I like my bed and my pillow. But you know, all that stuff is not what I look forward to. If my wife didn't travel with me, I look forward to being reunited with my wife. I look forward to seeing my kids and my grandkids, I look forward to those relationships. I think that's what heaven is all about. It's us looking forward to the day where we will meet Jesus in glory. The last thing that I see here is to love, to know his love, to know his love. You know, love is a hard thing to see. Unity is a hard thing to see. But we can witness it by the way people act, can't we? And I think Jesus gave us this ultimate display of his love for us. Here he is at his final moments on this earth. 
And he's praying for us to know his love. And what is he going to do? The next day he's going to go to the cross, die a horrific death, shed his blood, his innocent blood for our sins so that we can be restored in a right relationship with him to know his love. Do you know his love? Do you know the power of his love in your life? And has that love transformed your life? I pray that it has.